If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 10 through 17 this morning. I'll be preaching on a New American Standard uh, translation today. It'll be behind me on the screen for you to follow as well. This is our uh, 10th and final part of a series on biblical church membership that we entitled Dearest Place on Earth. Uh, This text, one of my favorite texts to preach and teach, um, this was a formative text uh, for my growth um, in my undergraduate degree in biblical studies because this text kind of unlocked for me, uh, one, the importance of the church in uh, God's design, and two, it showed me the importance of uh, context in biblical interpretation. Also, uh, three years ago next month, I preached this text in a view of a call. Um, and so some of y'all are like, three years, dang? Feels like 10, right? But uh, <laughs> a very important text to me, a very important text for us to kind of tie all this together, our journey through biblical church membership. And I must note that even though this is the end of uh, this series on biblical church membership, we're going to start our summer in Psalms uh, next week. Um, the discussion on biblical church membership should never stop. It should be part of the DNA of our church going forward. So let's go ahead and read this. Together, 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 10, going down to verse 17. God's word says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, this is Paul talking, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it or disclose it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. I think you'll agree with me that one of life's great sinking feelings that all adults experience at one point or another is when the car check engine light comes on. Has that happened to you? Of course it has. The light pops on. And you get this feeling in your stomach, right? And your mind begins to race as sweat beads form on your forehead. What could it be? Is it a big fix or a small one? And if you're a fatalist, you're thinking what? It's probably a big one, right? Will it be something that is relatively inexpensive or something that's going to break the bank? How long will my car be down? I need my car for work at school and I can't afford it being down right now. What am I going to do? And there aren't many things that all adults go through that fills them with this unique kind of dread. But truly, you have options, don't you, when the check engine light comes on? You could go immediately to the shop, right? Get it checked out. You could drive it for a few days and kind of see and wait, hope for the best. Or, do you know you could do this? You could take a sliver of duct tape and you could place it on the dashboard over the check engine light And then you could just keep going and pretend like nothing happened, right? You just move along like nothing happened at all. After all, if you go to the mechanic, 
He'll tell you things that are wrong with the car that need to be fixed, but if you don't go, you could kind of live in this blissful ignorance, right? I mean, clearly there's only one right recourse. If you keep driving for a few days, maybe nothing will get worse, or maybe you'll end up stranded someplace with no cell reception. If you put duct tape over the light, you'll do more and more damage until the engine finally just quits, or best case scenario, you ignore it for a long time, then get it fixed, and your bill ends up a lot higher than it would have been if you fixed it right away. Now, as we reach the end of our Biblical Church Membership Series, we look back on some challenging and revealing texts. And what we can't help but to have seen, that is, if we're contemplating honestly, hearing what the texts themselves revealed to us, is that the check engine light has been on at First Baptist Church of Cordial for a long time. One cannot escape the fact that this church has gone through an inordinate amount of trauma over the last several decades. It's inescapable. And one of the culprits is inescapably the lack of biblical church membership. The trauma has been the check engine light from the Lord telling us that something was amiss in the engine in the very lifeblood of the church towards the right destination. But I wonder if we haven't put duct tape over the light or at the very least kept driving assuring ourselves that at some point we would stop for an inspection or maybe we avoided the inspection because we were afraid of what it would reveal. And such things are hard to hear. There's no doubt about that. But we can't escape the fact that this series and these texts of Scripture have shown us quite a bit. These words from God on what it means to be a member of Christ's bride have been the mechanics instructions on what needs to happen to fix some of the problems in the engine, and it gives us a pit in our stomach, but then we have a choice to make. And that's what I want us to talk about today. You can, of course, assume everything we've talked about the last nine weeks is wrong, and you could dust yourself off, and you could continue on as nothing happened. I mean, that's your right to choose that. But you can't be surprised when the engine blows. Because now you know, don't you? See, in your car... Some junk might be going on in your engine that you really didn't know about because you can't see it. And, and nothing seemed wrong. In fact, if it weren't for the check engine light, you may have never known until the car just up and quit. And perhaps before these past nine weeks, you may have never been taught about biblical church membership and polity. And maybe never even really thought about it. So you not pursuing it was likely from a simple lack of being genuinely aware. But now you know. And you have to do something with it. And that's our question today. What will you do? In our present text, what we'll see here in a moment is three choices on what kind of builder in the church we could choose to be. Before we get to that, we need to be reminded of what we are building. And this is something we need to make sure we never forget. You'll notice in verse 10, Paul calls himself a wise master builder, which is saying he's a skilled architect and engineer rolled into one, okay? And he came to Corinth, and he brought the gospel. He planted the church. He laid a foundation of Christ and him crucified, which is another way of saying that Jesus himself and all of who he is and what he has done are the foundation for the church. Because you look at verse 9, we didn't read it, but if you just look up in your Bible, and you see that Paul calls the church both God's field and God's building. So in verses 10 through 17, Paul is zooming on in on the building metaphor, okay? 
Then you jump down to verses 16 through 17, and what does Paul say? Let's read them again. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and what? That is what you are. See, in English, and you've heard me say this before, the word you, Y-O-U, there's no difference, right, between the, the spelling of singular you and plural you. Isn't that true? There's, there's no difference. This is why I'm telling you we need a Southern Standard Edition Bible, because it would so help us with texts like this. So this will, I'm going to take out my Southern Standard Edition Bible translation, okay, and I'm going to read verse 16 and 17 again, okay? It says, do y'all not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells among, guess what? Y'all. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what? Y'all are. So it is the church that is the temple of God, because in Greek, the, every single use of the word you in 16 through 17 is in the plural, and every use of the word church or temple is in the singular, okay? So do you not know that you, plural, are a temple singular of God and the Spirit of God is among you when you gather? And, and what's interesting is that the word that Paul uses that is translated temple is a word that was used in Greek to refer to the innermost part of a temple where the God was thought to have dwelt, okay? So instead of using the word for temple complex, the whole temple complex, which there was a word, Paul chooses to use the word for the place where the God's presence was. So you think of your Old Testament, and you think of the tabernacle or the temple, he's referring to like the Holy of Holies, okay? That's where the presence of God was. It wasn't in the surrounding complex per se, but in the innermost part of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. So what is Paul saying? He is saying, and you got to get this, okay? you got to let this settle into your very bones. That the gathered church is now tantamount to the holy of holies. Don't you see that? Paul says that the church is the temple of God, and he tells us why, doesn't he? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in and amongst the church when it gathers. The very presence of God is present when the church is together. See, we live in an individualistic society, and we read a lot of biblical texts in individualistic ways, and we look at verse 16, and we assume that Paul is talking about me as an individual, I, my body is a temple, right? That's how we use it a lot. And he does mean it like that in chapter 6, but not here. Here he is saying that the local church is the temple of God when they gather because the very Spirit of God is amongst them. And the temple is whose temple? It's God's temple. The church is owned by God, not by man. The church is God-owned, spirit-indwelt, under Christ's headship. So when we talk about the church and when we approach the church, we need to remember what we're talking about here, the gravity of it. Do you see? It's not a social club. It's not a civic club. It's not a country club, it's not a concert venue, it's not a chance collection of individuals, it's not a product, it's not a big box store, it's not a vehicle for the whims and aspirations of individuals. It is the blood-bought bride and body of Christ, the very temple of God with the indwelling 
Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you this, and, and I told the early service that I wanted them to get Pentecostal and actually respond, so I expect that from you guys too, okay? Let me ask you this. Does it thus matter how we treat the church? Does it matter if we devalue it? Should these facts alter the way that you approach it and view it? Is it up to us to define and decide what the church will look like? No. Or do we answer to a higher authority who has handed us his very specific instructions? I imagine, I've never done this, but I imagine that something that is quite stressful would be to have a house custom built. You guys think that would be pretty stressful? Just getting the plans together, to me, it seems like it it could be very stressful and a great deal of work. But you, you can imagine if you had, let's say you were having a house custom built, you had plans drawn up to where you had an idea about what you wanted to the very last detail, from the number of rooms and bathrooms to what you wanted the faucets and wall outlets to look like. But then you hire a contractor, and what? It's up to them to execute their vision, your vision, right? Like, you are putting trust into their hands that they will carry out what's in your plans to the very last detail. And I, was, <laughs> I came across a nightmare, a lot of nightmare stories of contractors who failed to execute uh, their plan or, or hoodwinked uh, the owners. I think of one I came across recently where the couple was having what's called a net zero home built. Have you guys ever heard of that before? It's, it's, a, it's a house that produces all its own energy, okay? And to start with, some of their material literally were like lost on the boat in transit. And so they ended up paying $150,000 more on materials alone than they were quoted. And when their subcontractor was afraid that the owners were going to fire them, they split and stole all their appliances. So, so they, had a, they had to hire a new contractor, and this new contractor comes in, and he revealed that 80% of the house needed to be redone, meaning that the owners would have to exceed their budget by about $300,000, and their move-in date was moved by a year. And that's just one of many horror stories we could tell. The point is, if you were having someone build at great expense to yourself, and you had instructions on how exactly it was to be done and how it was to look, you would expect your vision to be executed fairly close to your ideas. Is that fair? I mean, you're the owner, for goodness sake. You're the one who's paying for it all. Shouldn't things be built to your specifications? If Jesus Christ, Lord of all things, who literally died, Ephesians 5, to purchase the church, handed to us the faith through the inspired, infallible, inerrant writings of his apostle, specific instructions on how to treat, view, and order the church, ought we not pursue those instructions? Ought we not let sink into our hearts how important the church is to him and how seriously he takes her treatment? Ought we remember that we are not the owners to do as we please, but stewards Like contractors charged to do as the owner commands. So now you have choices before you. Now that you've seen what God has revealed to us these last nine weeks, now that you are reminded who owns the church and how he expects it to be built, you, 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 you are being charged with building up the church. 
But not according to your way or power or authority, but his. Make no mistake, my friend. You are one of the builders that we are going to talk about in a moment. The only question is, which will you be? Because we might think if we don't participate, if we do nothing, that we won't be a builder. Like we can opt out of building God's church. But there is no option available to us that would even hint at such a thing. Even if you think you're not a builder. We go through these three builders, you're like, I'm not one of these. You are, okay? You are just building incorrectly. So there's no option for non-builder. Everyone builds. The only choice is, which will you be? Now, do you see... This is emphasized at the end of verse 10. Look again at the end of verse 10. Notice what Paul says. Let each one take care what? How they build. If you are a highlighter or you like to underline in your Bible or circle things, circle, highlight, underline, point arrows to the phrase, how he builds on it. Because this is the controlling phrase for verses 10 through 17. Okay? See, you might have heard this text preached before, and many, many well-meaning preachers and teachers, what they've done with this passage is they zoom into verse 12, and they focus the whole thing on building materials that are listed here, okay? And they say, typically, that you can build with the good stuff, which is gold, silver, and precious stone, or you can build with the bad stuff, which is wood, hay, and straw. But that's not what Paul's doing here at all, and let me tell you why. For one, there's no or between precious stones and wood, okay? He's not doing a compare and contrast list. The second, the language Paul is using here, and it's fascinating, my, I had a professor who showed us, they found archaeologically a first century building contract, and he put it side by side with this text, and the language was very close. And so in a first century building contract, the materials would simply just be listed, And that's what Paul's doing here. And third, if he's talking about the metaphor of constructing a temple, every temple without exception in the first century would have been, would have required all the materials he listed here. I mean, have you ever seen a building built of only gold or only silver? Every building in the first century needed to have a wood frame that was filled with mud and mixed with hay and straw. Then they would paint over it with gold and silver and inlay it with precious stones. I mean, you've, you've all seen buildings under construction, right? I mean, no matter how fancy they are, they need to be framed out, don't they? Of course, the outside might be fancy, but the inside wall is just plain Jane wood and nails, right? I mean, I even heard about a building in Manhattan that was going to be made from bricks that have 24 karat gold dust in them. First of all, why? Right? Like, why? <laughs> but do you think the inside of the walls is just straight up gold? No way. The interior walls are made from the same thing that every other apartment building in Manhattan is made of, regardless of what neighborhood it is or the income of their future tenants. And that's how it was in the first century. Every building had wood frames with mud and and straw and hay mixed in. Paul isn't trying to draw us to the materials. He's simply listing them off. This is what he wants to focus on. He wants us to focus on how we build, how it is we build. Because verse 13 says... Each one's work will become evident for the day will disclose it. Each one's work, how they build, the quality of each one's work will be revealed by fire, is what he says. In other words, you realize this, every single person, without exception, 
will have to answer on inspection day for how they built and approached and treated Christ's church. Everyone. Friend, do you realize that you will stand before the throne of the building owner who is Christ and he will inspect how you built on the foundation, which the foundation is himself and his gospel. He will look to see if you built on that foundation according to that foundation of the gospel or according to your own plans. Now, when, when Paul says here that it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test the quality of each man's work, you have to picture, again, first century buildings. Okay, This is where context will, again, help. It's not like he's setting the buildings on fire to see which one survives. It's not what's going on here. When you hired a, a building, uh, you hired someone to build a building in the first century, you would have a contract, which we'll mentioned again in a minute, that commissions the person, they would list the materials and the specifications, and they'd have agreed upon sum of money that would be paid no matter what. Okay? If you built according to the agreement, you would receive an extra reward on top of what you were agreed to pay. And once the building was done, right, this is the first century, they couldn't just flip on the light switch, right? The owner would enter the building, and they would light a torch, and they would inspect every nook and cranny to see if you built the way specified. The fire would reveal the workmanship because it would illuminate it. Paul is saying that something similar will happen to Christians when they stand before Christ. He will take the church, as it were, and search up and down and side to side to see how you treated his church and how you built it on the foundation. On the day, Paul says which is judgment day. Christ will see with the torch if there are cracks, if the roof is lopsided, if it's caving in, if the doors are all different sizes, etc., metaphorically speaking. Or perhaps it will reveal that you built the way he commissioned you to build, and you will receive an extra reward. But he's given you, yes, everything you need, hasn't he, to build correctly? The most important thing you have, verse 11 is the foundation of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And on top of that, he has given you the equipping Holy Spirit to give you the ability to build correctly. Now, I want you to think about, let's zoom into the thinking about foundation for a minute before we look at these builders. Can it rightly be said that the foundation is the most important part of any building? Is that fair to say? The entire structure, right, rests on the foundation and relies on the foundation to carry the load for the rest of the building. If you have a bad foundation, no matter how nice or well you build on it, or no matter what materials you use, it's in danger of utter collapse, right, and destruction if the foundation is bad. I was, uh, the importance of foundation really hit home for me, because I never, I mean, who thinks about that? Not, not many people. Once I moved to North Texas, see, growing up in Colorado, the foundation and the ground were solid. You, you'd never rarely hear people have foundation problems. And then we moved to North Texas, and you like walk into people's houses, and there's like these massive cracks going up the walls and into the ceiling and stuff. Some of their doors don't close correctly. And you'd ask, like, what's going on here, right? And, and they said, well, the foundation shifted. I didn't know they could do, maybe y'all are like, you moron, of course they could shift. I did not know that, okay? <laughs> the, 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 the soil in North Texas is so wonky that it, the foundation would literally 
shift. And people had to spend thousands of thousands of dollars to get the foundation repaired, and then thousands and thousands more to get all the jacked up stuff inside fixed. The foundation is crucially important. And Paul is calling on us who have the foundation to not just build upon the foundation. He is telling us we must build in accordance with the foundation. That means we allow the foundation of Christ and him crucified to inform how we build. You see, our foundation of Jesus must be the most important thing about us as individuals and as a church. And we must draw from him as he carries the weight while we build and live. And though the crux of this passage is paying attention to how we build, building well does us no good if we have a weak or non-existent foundation. The only foundation that will do for a life well lived and for a life of solid building is Christ. If we don't have Jesus as our foundation as a church or as individuals, then our building will collapse even before the building inspector can scrutinize it. On top of that, if we don't have the foundation of Jesus, then we aren't building. And it's not a temple of God. It's something else entirely, which is, again, why biblical membership ought to be exclusively for Christians with credible professions. If someone is not a Christian, then they don't have the foundation, and thus, they're not helping in building of the temple of God. They just can't. We need the foundation for stability, for right living, and building without it, disaster is sure to follow. Think of... Um, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You guys all know the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? You know why it's famous, right? Because it leans. <laughs> That's why. So that goofy tourist can take the picture where they look like they're holding it up, right? You know it wasn't supposed to, right? It wasn't supposed to lean. You know, it's 183 feet tall. It's made out of marble and stone. It took 199 years to build it. 199 years. You know why it leans? Because it's in Pisa, which literally means, the word Pisa, marshy. Okay? Every year it leans another one-twentieth of an inch. And it's this beautiful building, but the foundation is bad and inadequate. As a foundation that's only three meters thick, on top of those three meters sits stone and marble over 190 feet tall. All the work and the time and the effort put into it may be for naught because it could just fall over, right? See how important the foundation is, how dangerous it is to have a faulty one? We can't overstate the importance of the foundation that is Jesus because it will inform how we approach life and the church. If we truly have the gospel foundation, if we truly understand what Christ has done, if we truly understand who Christ is, then we ought to allow that gospel to inform how we approach the church, right? Right? The gospel is inherently selfless, other-directed, self-sacrificial, is it not? Have we not seen in every single text in this series that to approach the church rightly is to do so with an utterly other-focused, Christ-exalting disposition? We've seen that every single week. If we say we have the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, should that not inform our whole lives? especially how we treat the church. A refusal to consider others and the mission of Christ is more important than ourselves. A selfish, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, self-preferential posture is to build in such a way that forgets the foundation. And it's disastrous. 
So you will build. Each person will build. And what are we building? The temple of God. Not a building made of brick and mortar, but the building that is the church made up of the redeemed of God. This means it matters eternally how you approach and build the church. And now here are your options. There are three options of the type of the builder that you could be in this text. You have been one and you will be one. Number one, wise builder. Number two, the careless builder. Or number three, the destroyer. Wise builder, careless builder, or the destroyer. So first we see the wise builder from verse 14, okay? This, of course, is the builder we should all what? (laughs) Strive to be, right? We should all want to be this first builder. This builder builds in accordance with the foundation of Christ and him crucified. Paul says that the work of this builder remains and he will receive a reward. Remember again what I mentioned a moment ago. If the builder was hired in the first century to build a structure, they would get paid no matter what. Okay, So you have the foundation of Jesus Christ, you're going to eternity. You're going into heaven, right? But if they built in accordance with the wishes of their owner, if they built following the blueprints, if the work was done in accordance with the foundation, then they would receive an extra reward on top of the agreed-upon amount. So you receive reward in heaven on top of what you get for having the foundation of Christ. Further, their work will remain. It will survive. It will last for a long time. It will stand strong. If you have a foundation of Christ and him crucified, you must build in accordance with the foundation, according to the blueprints that you have been provided. And what are those blueprints? God's holy, inspired Inerrant and sufficient word. Everything you need to know, do you know this? Everything you need to know about building the church up is right there. No additive needed. The word is enough. Can I have some help? Somebody say amen. I usually don't do that, but come on. (laughs) We're Baptists, right? We're people of the book. Those are the only blueprints we need. We all, each and every one of us, have many opinions, don't we? I got opinions, you got opinions. We're Baptists, we got an extra dose of opinion, right? Where two or three Baptists are gathered in in his name, there's six opinions, right? We all have opinions of what the church should look like, what it should do, how it should be organized, how it should be operated, how it ought to be approached. That's just human nature, right? We are full of opinions and wishes and desires. But we must recognize that those things are not the final arbiters of what the church should actually be and do. Because, my opinion, your opinion, fickle, fallible. But do you know what isn't? The Word of God. These are our blueprints, and they are enough. Scripture tells us exactly how we ought to build, doesn't it? Isn't that what we've seen the last 10 weeks? And we've seen many of those instructions. The blueprints tell us how to build in accordance with the foundation, which, among other things, are you ready? Here's a summary of what we've seen the last 10 weeks. Build in accordance with the foundation, this is what it looks like. 
Exercising the keys of the kingdom with meaningful and guarded membership. It means that we are each given a gift to use as part of a functioning body and for the good of others. It means drawing near to one another and stimulating one another to love and good deeds, not staying away from the gathering, as is the habit of some. It means conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm, striving together with one mind. It means not doing anything from selfish ambition and vain glory, but considering others more important than ourselves. It means having the mind of the selfless Christ. It means watching over one another's walk with the Lord. It means earnestly maintaining unity and bearing one another's burdens. It means being united with one body, with one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father overall. It means baptizing and discipling. It means renewing our vows at the Lord's table. It means pursuing biblical polity and guarding the gospel entrusted to us. But not only do we build according to blueprints, but we build, don't miss this, together together. Remember all the plurals in verse 16? We are the temple of God insofar as we are together and united as one. If we're going to build the temple of God, we need to be on the same page and unite together in purpose and mission. We cannot build a sound structure alone, nor can we do it when we segment ourselves into little subgroups, nor can we build a structure that's sound if we're divided. You know that? I mean, what, what will you have if you have some building according to the foundation and according to blueprints and then others doing their own things, building their own way according to their own whims? What will you have? Let's, you circle back to the illustration of having a custom house built for you at great expense. And you can imagine if you had the blueprints, every detail, right, like we talked about, uh, to the very last detail you had, you hired a contractor, execute my vision for me. And then say the contractor had a partner and they come together to build your house, and they draw a line in the middle of the property. And they said, okay, you take this side of the property, I'll take this side of the property, and then we'll just meet in the middle. So one built exactly as the blueprint described, and the other built however they wanted. Okay, They just took the initiative to build the house the way they think things should go. They didn't look at the blueprints, not even once. Okay, So they build, and they build, and they build, and they build. When they meet together, the ceilings are different heights, the floorings are, are different materials, the walls are different colors, you end up with like five kitchens, no laundry room, half a bathroom, different exterior paint colors and different roofs, and they don't even come together because they're different heights. Would you be okay with that? Of course not, because not only did it matter that they built, it mattered that they built together and both worked off the same blueprints. Now, if that is silly in terms of building a house, how much sillier is it to try to build the house of God this way? And yet, that is often how we approach the church. Sometimes we build without thought of the foundation. Other times we build based off of our own blueprints. And other times we build but not with unity. And the results, as you know, are disastrous. Some build according to the word. Others build according to their preferences. Others still build by themselves and with no thought of the rest of the workers. Others fight and bicker about how to, what to build and how. And then what you have is either half a building or a standstill. And no work is being done because folks are just fighting and arguing all the live long day. So while each person must take care how they build, they must not build in isolation. They must act, strive to build in concert with their fellow members and according to the blueprints given by the Lord. They must agree with one another that Scripture 
will be the guiding force for how they build and work together for one another's edification and for the mission of Christ to disciple and reach the world. They must put themselves on the shelf and work diligently for the whole. The wise builder is indeed a builder in that they both have the foundation that they live in accordance with the gospel they profess, that they approach the church according to the blueprints, and they actually build. In other words, they see their primary task as building others up. Not watching in hopes that others will somehow be built up in some other way, nor do they spend their time tearing people down because they're too busy to do all that noise because they're building up and encouraging people. Ben Witherington says, building up is seen as the essential task of the Christian in and for the community. It is perhaps the paramount expression of Christian love for one's brothers and sisters. The wise builder, they build others up. They don't spend their time tearing people down. You know, anybody could do that, right? Tear people down? Is that not the easiest thing in the world? But it isn't what the wise builder does. Because tearing down is the work of the foolish, who have plenty of time for such things because they aren't building at all. The wise builder, they build others up. They put others first. They do their part to see others faithfully follow Christ. That's the task of the faithful Christian, will you be that wise builder? What about the second builder? I mean, that's the only choice, that's the only good choice, okay? There's only bad choices from here, right? The wise builder is who you want to be. The second builder, he's careless. He's the careless builder. You see that in verse 15. This builder has the foundation of Christ crucified, meaning they are Christians, they are saved, but they do not build in accordance with the foundation, and they basically ignore the blueprints in their approach to the church. He is saved solely because of the foundation and receives no reward for whatever building he does. Why? Because he had no part, he's getting into eternity because of the foundation, which he had no part in, right? All of that is Christ and what he has done. But this builder has failed to build the church in a way that Christ has said. So at the day of the Lord... Jesus is going to inspect their construction with fire. He's going to go up and down with his torch. And we inspect it and find that the workmanship is so shoddy that it did not last. So this person builds basically however they want, right? Without thought of the foundation or blueprints. I was thinking of, uh, as I was thinking about this builder, I was reminded of a building on the campus of Ohio State University called the Wexner Center of the Arts. Have you guys ever heard of that thing? It's meant to be what they call a citadel of postmodern architecture. It has stairways that lead nowhere, columns that come down but never touch the floor, beams and galleries going everywhere, doors that open to nowhere, and it has this like crazy-looking exposed girder system over most of the outside. So there's very little purpose for the building, and it can't really be inhabited, right? It's just a piece of art. However, the foundation is not built that way, right? You can bet that the foundation isn't halfway built. The builder had a solid foundation but did not build in accordance with it. That's the careless builder. They survive, but Paul says, as through fire, by the skin of their teeth, if you will. And I'm afraid that many Christians today fit this builder, So many have the solid foundation of Christ, but they don't build in accordance with it. 
They ignore the blueprints of Scripture. They refuse to build with others. They're like the guy in the picture earlier building his own way while the other guy built according to the blueprints. They, they know the blueprints are there, but they prefer their own way. And thus, they build in a careless, haphazard way, and their life and damage they wrought on the church is as evident as the Wexner Center's exposed girder system. This builder is your classic consumeristic Christian. They want the church the way they want it, and that's the only way to build because if you don't build that way, that they want to, they'll drop their hammer and go home or they'll go to another construction site. Because they think the building is inherently about them and for them and not primarily about others. This builder professes Christ, but their building says something different because of the way they treat God's temple as if it exists for their proclivities and to be a vehicle for their consumption rather than being a contributing builder. And this type of builder... This type of building, it will not last. Mark Taylor says, any work that exalts men or that arises out of the self-serving motive will perish on the day of the Lord. That's what we see here, isn't it? Inspection day will reveal the posture of this builder as selfish, individualistic, and stubborn. It will reveal their desire to build however they wanted to build with no thought of their foundation or blueprints or their fellow builders. They will enter eternity because of the foundation, because of the work of another, namely Christ, but they will receive no extra reward. They will escape judgment as through fire. The inspector will take his torch, he will inspect what they have built, and the fire will reveal their careless building, their cracked walls, their dilapidated roof, their uneven doorways, and their lack of unity. So they receive no further reward. What about our third and final builder? This fellow is in verse 17. We'll call him the destroyer. This person isn't a builder at all, really. They have no foundation. They don't have Jesus Christ and him crucified. They don't know him. They might think they know him, but they don't. Because rather than building, they simply seek to destroy what others have built or are building. Their mission in life is to tear down existing structures and to make life hard for others. Inspection day will reveal this. It will reveal that they have no foundation and so God has a way of dealing with them. What does it say? This is a hard verse, isn't it? If any man destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Do you feel the force and the weight of that, of those words? That's heavy, isn't it? If any man destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Craig Blomberg says, God will indeed respond differently to different kinds of believers on judgment day, but the real danger to fear is the eternal destruction of those who would divide and tear down the church now. Imagine, again, the context of the first century building, okay? And you picture one of these uh, temples being built, and it's in the midst of construction, okay? You have your wood beams up, and you have the mud freshly put into the walls. Then someone shows up with an axe and a powerful fire hose, and they just start tearing through the walls, cutting through the wood, and leave. That's this person. This person wreaks havoc. They divide the church. They spread false teachings. They gossip and slander in order to malign. They fight. They tear down. They generally do damage to the church. And they might even think they're doing it for God. You remember Saul of Tarsus thinking he was dragging Christians out of their home to be executed, and he was doing it for Yahweh. That's this person. They're wolves in sheep clothing, which is why they're so deceptive. But do you see, friends, 
just how seriously God takes how we treat his temple, his church, his people. I mean, do you see it? Can you, can you read verse 17 and make any other conclusion besides that God takes seriously how we treat his church? Paul's giving what might, we might call an oath curse in verse 17, saying that those who mistreat God's people are mistreating God. And therefore, they will face punitive action. Do you see that how we build matters? How we use our gifts, how we use our time, how we rely on Christ, how we unite with one another matters eternally to God. Do you see that? So serious does God take the truth of his church that anyone who threatens it with destruction will be met with his holy recompense. Jesus takes seriously those who jag with his bride. Do you know that? And we can't just dismiss the enormity of these verses with a hand wave. God cares eternally how we treat the church and how you treat the church will last for eternity or it will only be fit to be burnt up. So what will you choose? So you may have gone through this whole series thinking, Vaughn, I don't like this idea of biblical church membership. I don't, I don't like this. This seems hard. But remember... For one, nothing is being asked here that isn't what the Bible calls for us. And also remember that whether or not you, this is a hard word, whether or not you or I like something is not the litmus test of whether something is good or true or right or biblical or orthodox. The question is, did you see what God said in his word about his church and your part in it? Believe me, I know that the most comfortable, easiest path would be to not address biblical church membership at all. It would have been far easier for me to come and just reinforce the status quo because there's nothing truly, nothing easier than that. My desire for you and for us is to be a healthy church that pursues what the Bible says and nothing else. What we want is for FBC to be an environment where disciples are made in unity for the glory of Christ where we pursue our mission of loving God, loving his church, and loving your neighbor in God's way, and where everything we do is seen through those lenses. Because these last 10 weeks will have been a waste, just a waste if we dust ourselves off and move along as if nothing happened. We must do something with what God has revealed to us. We must. Did you know that I've been waiting nearly three years to preach this series? Because I've known it's been needed, and I was simply waiting for the right season to share it with you, and praise God, he's provided that space for it to be addressed during this time. And we must do something with what God has shown us through his word. We just have to. I know what Christ has called me to do, and what he has called me to do is to lead you to health and faithfulness, to do everything I can to foster an environment in which you will grow in the Lord, grow in unity, and grow in his word, and I'll take the flinging arrows to do it. And friends, we must continue to move forward to these goals. We have to realize that we simply are not going backwards, and we can't. 
We can't do things the way we've always done them because look what that has wrought. It hasn't wrought health. It hasn't wrought unity, and you know that. And again, that's not saying everything we've ever done has been bad or harmful. We have to see that God has something better for us in pursuing his word no matter how uncomfortable it is. The best days for FBC Cordial are not behind us, they're before us. We don't have to be afraid of the future. We don't have to recoil at needed change because God is already in the future and he has promised us a reward for faithfulness. And being faithful is all he's asking for us in light of his gospel. What will you choose? Which builder will you be? You're going to make a choice. The choice is before you. Will you see what God has said to us these last two weeks to see God intends for us to have biblical church membership, that God is calling us to faithfulness regardless of the cost, that God is calling you as a member to give of yourself for the sake of others and to build up his body for his glory? And will you let settle in your heart just how much God cares about the church? And will you let that always inform how you approach it? God can and wants to use this church for his purposes, but we have to see the foundation of the gospel and be obedient to it as we move forward together in God's way by the power of his spirit for Christ's fame, are you willing? What I like to do is just provide a space for some quiet contemplation, okay? Just a time to reflect over everything God has taught you and convicted your heart about these past 10 weeks and, and use this time to ask God to help you forgive if you're holding on to things from the past, to help you and I be humble, to help us as a church have courage to follow the word of God into biblical church membership, that our hearts will be ruined afresh by God's grace and have a burden for our community even as we pursue health and faithfulness inside the church. Pray that we guard the gospel and membership and take God's word seriously, even if it is costly or uncomfortable. And pray that we would pursue our mission of loving God, loving his church, and loving our neighbor in everything that we do.